Welcome to the Ag Future Podcast, presented by Alltech. Join us as we explore the future of farming, food, and nutrition. I'm talking with David Donnan, senior partner with AT Carney, a global management consulting firm based in Chicago. David, welcome. Hello. <laughs> Your firm conducted a recent study called Consumer at 250, which found that a fundamental shift in consumer behavior is underway. Can you tell me a bit about some of the core findings and how Amazon, Alibaba, and millennials have become the future influencers of retail? Well, Consumer at 250 has a special meaning. 250, it'd be 2026, is the 250th anniversary or birthday of the United States. So we looked out 10 years, what were going to be the demographic, technology, resource, financial, economic issues facing us in the next 10 years, and how that would impact consumers. So we looked at, at that point in time, the two biggest cohorts, the two biggest population groupings or generations will be millennials, which we're all familiar with, and Generation Z, the ones following right after millennials. In fact, Baby boomers, who have been so much of a dynamic force in the economics of the world for so long, are actually, unfortunately, on their way out or decline, and are being much less of an influence. Most of them will be retired, have less income, and less spending capabilities. So we looked at millennials and Generation Z and say, what are the fundamental drivers that are affecting them, that are changing how they buy things different than what we've seen before? So what we found was two things. Primarily over the last 30 years, there's three drivers of consumption that we've looked at. And those drivers are usually affluence, persuasion, and scale. Affluence, we all wanted to be better than our parents. We all wanted to earn more money. We all wanted to be richer. Persuasion was how the brands took advantage of us. They persuaded us to buy their products. You'll be smarter. You'll be thinner. You'll be better liked if you use our product. And then finally, scale. You had to have big plants, big factories, big marketing budgets, big sales forces to succeed in that. And that's how our entire consumer products industry has developed, large retailers, large CPG companies. We believe this has changed. And so the change is now three new uh, drivers, which are influence, trust, and personalization. And that's what I, my whole presentation is around, is how each one of those influences our consumers. And how does categorizing Generation Z and millennials and these different groups, how does that help in understanding marketing? Well, you know, th there is no such thing as an average millennial, like there's no such thing as an average boomer or an average anyone. So, But we do see fundamental shifts in how they receive information, how they process information. And what we look at is what is driving their values in how they purchase things. So values being driven by products that have some purpose behind them. Is it a sustainability purpose? Is it a purpose behind nutritional content? Is it a, a purpose behind child welfare or about localized uh, products? So those things are becoming much, much more part of the influence we're seeing with consumer products. Where in the past, we used to buy on value. You know, we would buy eggs as cheap as we could get them for a dozen. Now we buy omega-3 eggs. We buy cage-free eggs. We buy, you know, eggs that are GMO-free. Those are all values 
based purchases rather than value-based purchases. As you said, consumers are growing more passionate about um, the things that they purchase, including the food that they eat. It's really interesting to see how all these reality TV shows glorifying chefs have really taken off over the years. What impact have celebrity chefs had in the local food movement and driving the farm-to-table fresh approach to consumption? So I think the celebrity chefs have really made food entertainment. I mean, if we look back 20, 30 years, food was there for nutrition. We were there to eat, to get calories, to eat food that tasted good, et cetera. And you occasionally went out to a restaurant. Now with celebrity chefs and with the whole food movement, food is celebrated in a different way. And people look to food as not only a measure of getting nutrition, of getting calories, but an expression of their self-worth, an expression of their own character. And I would even challenge now, I think celebrity chefs are on their way out. Really? Now we're celebrating the local farmer. We're celebrating that local producer, the farmer, the cattleman, the local butcher, the local produce person. They're becoming the true measure, the true icon of the food industry today as we look beyond sort of the glitz of celebrity chefs to the real fundamental values and authenticity of a local farmer. How is the local farmer being celebrated? Is it through digital media, social networks? Uh, probably a variety. So first and foremost, farmer's markets. There has been a giant growth in farmer's markets over the last several years. And, and every town has a farmer's market. Every neighborhood has a farmer's market. So that's driving that. Second, grocery stores now are trying to replicate farmer's markets in their produce sections. If you look at grocery stores, most people shop what's called the perimeter of the grocery store. That's the areas outside the center, up and down those straight aisles, those boring aisles, and go to the perimeter, which is all around the seafood, the meats, the poultry, the fresh vegetables and fruits, the deli, the bakery, the dairy. All of those are where we're going. And those are mimicking more and more like a farmer's market. Then social media. Look at what's happening now with the ability to do full uh, traceability. So when I go to a Whole Foods or I go to a Kroger or I go to a Walmart, I can not only buy my fresh produce, but I know where it came from, not only where it came from, but how it was made. So it's not just buying broccoli. It's buying broccoli that came from this farm and it came through these processes. That's a different set of information than we've had before. Would you say that millennials are more impressionable, uh, hence the impact of these shows and uh, being able to change the dynamic of the store, or is it the opposite of that? And if it is, what is it that people are connecting with in the programs and uh, the things you're mentioning? So I don't know if it's impressionable as I, I see across the board, whether it's millennials, boomers, Generation Z, or the alpha generation that follows Generation Z, there is this shift in trust and authority figures. If you look at the Edelman study on trust every year, the trust barometer, trust in institutions has gone down dramatically. So trust in governments has gone down. Trust in big business has gone down. So part of the, the equation on trust is who do you trust? And what we're finding, particularly with the age of social media and digitally enabled consumers, mostly millennials and Generation Z, which are the first digitally native generation to grow up totally digital, is that their trust is around their friends. Their trust is around social media activities. Their trust is around influencers on social media. So it may be uh, Laura Vitale, who's an Italian chef, who talks about you know, great Italian cooking. She becomes the trust person rather than the USDA food plate or nutritional pyramid. Interesting. What viewpoints and products that were once outliers with co-ops and local health food stores would you say hmm. have gone mainstream? 
avocados, number one. Bone broth is now uh, coming up into play as we're seeing the, the use of collagen, uh, using collagen and bone broth to help your skin. So we're using it as a, a cosmetic that you digest. Um, you know, quinoa was obviously one that came and, 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 and has kind of come and a bit gone. Um, but just getting into allugra and, and all the different types of vegetables and salads and, and things that, you know, were there. We're also seeing, and it's just starting now, is a whole area of supplements and vitamins and other what I'll call non-mainstream types of uh, products. No scientific evidence behind it. Some people will have advocacy. And, and the whole uh, thing I think about food is we're, we're all so clustering into food tribes. So think about it. It used to be, you know, you'd go and, you'd go and eat Italian. If you're from Italy, you'd eat Italian. If you're from Greece, you'd eat Greek. You know, if from China, you'd eat Chinese. Now food tribes go around sort of nutritional norms. So I'm a vegan. Mm-hmm. I'm a paleo. You know, I'm, I'm a, uh, a person that uh, only eats gluten-free products. So you tend to tribe around what you're eating now rather than the country you came from and you're in your uh, daily eating as well. So that has an effect on the types of products which were non-mainstream before coming into mainstream. How is the same demand for transparency impacting the ag industry? Is the pressure as strong? And if so, where do you see new consumer demands really taking effect and impacting the future? So if you look at and talk to grocery stores or restaurants, they want to have that transparency right back to the farm. So they want to know, is this chicken antibiotic-free? Always been antibiotic-free. Is it cage-free? I want to know these vegetables. Have they been sprayed with a fungicide, herbicide, pesticide, et cetera? So that pushes its way back to the food brokers and the food wholesalers who then push back to the farmers as well. And I'm seeing farmers are very, very responsive to this. They're trying to get sustainable agriculture, regenerative agriculture, trying to reduce the amount of fungicides and pesticides and herbicides they're using, trying to be much more cautious but also much more um, thoughtful in how they make the product as well because they realize consumers are ultimately going to, to – uh, buy this product, and that's what they're going to look for. It may or may not be organic. I mean, organic is one part the consumers look at, but it's only, but people may just want less processing, less artificial in the product. Throughout some of your articles um, that I've seen online, you mentioned the significance of personalization. How is this created to influence consumer engagement? Well, I think we're at a level of personalization now that we've not seen before because of our connection with digital media and digital technology. So we all have iPhones, or most of us do. Many of us have Fitbits, and so we're also measuring when we're, we're exercising. All that information is going somewhere. And so Google and Facebook and others know when you're, when you're awake and when you're sleeping and when you're walking and how much activity you have and what's your heartbeat. And all those things get down to being, okay, I'm going to target active people versus targeting non-active people. I'm going to target people that are, you know, much more physically uh, in, enabled in these types of sports than others. And so that type of a process is going on. And, and I think one of the greatest phrases I've heard is that if you're getting Facebook for free, you're not the customer, you're the product. And so the amount of information that's being gathered on each one of us is over five gigabytes a person. And it's really, you know, just on all of our activities. And that information is being used to better personalize. Does that cause some dissonance with millennials and Generation Z? Because it seems like it would. Um, It can, because I think right now people are willing to give information up if they get something in return. The recent scandals at Facebook and, and, and some of the things with the Cambridge Analytics and everything else, I think are starting to put a pause on it. Although 
Facebook's numbers still are increasing. They're not decreasing. So I think people are willing to give up personal information if they get something back that they feel is of value. And Facebook is, I guess. I think something that really made a presence with this last presidential election was the increased hype behind purchasing power. Consumers are putting their money behind products that meet their worldview ethically and however else. Why hasn't this been tapped into before? And why is this a millennial or Gen Xer thing, would you say? Well, I think the whole idea of purchase decisions are important. It's become more of a, of a, a thing, more of a movement in the last uh, 10, 15 years. And I think, again, comes back to this issue of trust. We have less trust in government institutions, less trust in big business, but we trust our own purchases and we trust what we do. So I know that if, for example, I do not want uh, uh, eggs coming from hens that have been caged, then I have a way of, of expressing that view by buying cage-free eggs. Uh, similarly, I can, I can buy other products that have a, a worldview either on sustainability, environmentalism, et cetera. And that is being heard by companies. And in fact, what we're seeing is a lot of the changes that are occurring, whether they are in regulatory, food safety, sustainability, environmental concern, are being driven by companies, not necessarily being driven by more federal or state regulations. And so I think that's a very positive thing because it means consumers really are in charge of saying, what is it we value and how do we make sure that it is being delivered to us in the way we want? So is that really increasing the role of corporate social responsibility? I think it does. I think many corporations have realized how important it is that corporate res social responsibility is a key part, and and it and it is very fickle as well. You can lose it very quickly if you do something that people deem to be unethical or or against your values. And so I think companies now are are paying very close attention to making sure that they're living what they say. Did the report reveal that the top 25 U.S. food manufacturers' share of U.S. food and beverage retail sales has declined from 66% in 2012 to 63% in 2015? Or is this something that was known before Consumer at 250? Um, it, was, it was generally known, I think, in the last two years. But I think if you look at the, the large CPG, consumer product goods companies and food companies, they have lost a lot of share in the last three to four years. In fact, over $15 billion in market share. And you, you, the reason being is, is a couple of fold. One is there is a, a much more movement toward fresh. So we're, we're shopping the perimeter rather than the center of the store. And the second one is that there's a lot more startups now. Look at Chobani and what they did to the yogurt industry. You know, look what RX Bars is doing now with Kellogg. I mean, there's, there's a variety of things that have been where new startups, innovators, more authentic brands are taking share away from some of the larger companies. If you think about the beer industry, though, a lot of these larger companies are buying up microbreweries because the brands are hyper-local. Mm. Is this a quick fix or is it overall, you know, strategic? The, the local beer movement seems to really have come out against these buyouts. Yeah, I think, you know, if, if you're a startup, if you're a small entrepreneur, I mean, getting bought out is kind of a good thing in some ways because you do get the cash out all of your investment. But yes, is, again, is it the authentic nature of it? Is authenticity is important. So if all of a sudden we find out these craft breweries are just being run out of some big mega factory in the middle of, a, of, middle of the uh, grain fields, then we're going to lose interest in it. We, part of it is we like the fact that it is local. Part of it is we like the fact that it has some um, uh, community involvement as well. And I think there's also a shift in technology that's occurring where scale, as I mentioned before, was a, a key determinant to success. Now 
Scale is less important because I can actually manufacture, I can produce goods on smaller lot sizes now using things like HPP, high pressure pasteurization, using vertical farming or indoor grow that can grow vegetables right inside of a, of a, of a warehouse or on top of a roof or, or using other types of technologies around uh, sous vide or other types of preservation technologies, which allow me to grow things, to make things, to prepare things very locally. Think about what's happening now in the home delivery business. Used to be you just get, you know, home, you're at home, you order pizza, and that was about it. Now with Uber Eats and Grubhub and Foodora and uh, Blue Apron and all of the other options, there are just many, many options to get fresh, good quality, highly nutritious food delivered to your house. And that's, that's fundamentally different than, than even occurred five years ago. Seeing the stronger local movements move forward makes me think a greater distribution of market wealth could surface. Is that what you're saying? How does a shift like this influence corporate social responsibility efforts? Yeah, so there, I mean, there is an opportunity for more uh, distribution of wealth. However, you know, there's still a concentration with large companies because they have access to capital. Large companies also have access to, um, to large uh, uh, distribution formats, etc., but sort of the, the thing that is leveling the playing field is companies like Alibaba and Amazon, which, you know, Alibaba in China, which is much bigger than Amazon, uh, 30 to 40% of their vendors are, you know, small mom and pops. They're independent. They're not large companies. And so the ability for a small company to get a platform, to get distribution, and to get access to a community is much easier than it ever was before. So it's more collaborative. It should be like, yeah, much more collaborative, an ability to, again, get success, get distribution, get engagement because you're, you have something to sell and you have a story to sell rather than just the fact that you happen to be on shelf because you happen to pay the slotting fee to get there. Is there anything else your research revealed regarding changes that could potentially shape the next decade in retail that we might not have time to get into, but you feel is important to at least well, touch I think, on? Well, I think the next decade retail is look to China and look what's happening with Alibaba and their uh, new uh, retail formats, where they're a combination of physical format and online format, much like the Amazon Go in Seattle. So you go into the store, um, you already are registered on your, your app, you bring in your phone. You get the product, it gives you all the information, it attracts you. You pay by face scan. So your face is actually scanned and that's what pays for the product. So what they've made is what I'll call the ultimate convenience store. So you walk in, find your product, you already know what's there, it's giving you alerts and you walk out and that's it. And there's nothing, there's no cash transaction, there's no standing in line. There's, and if the product is not on shelf, it automatically recognizes that and will have it delivered to your house. I mean, it's just, it's just this combination of online and physical retail, which I think gives you high touch, but high tech as well. David Donnan is a senior partner with AT Carney, a global management consulting firm based in Chicago. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Ag Future podcast presented by Alltech. For show notes and more episodes, visit alltech.com forward slash ag future.